Welcome to the Synaxis Podcast. A Synaxis is a liturgical gathering. It can also refer to an unveiling event. The Synaxis Podcast is a weekly gathering hosted by yours truly, Scott Jones, for the purpose of finding the life-giving healing word of the gospel and the words of the weekly lectionary passages. Join myself and a guest each week as we explore the lectionary text together. This is the place for gospel-rich, grace-saturated, and a properly worldly lens on the week's lectionary passages, all in 25 minutes or less. My guest is Greg Strawbridge. He is the pastor of All Saints Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. He's authored and edited a number of books, including The Case for Covenant Communion and The Case for Covenantal Infant Baptism. He also runs WordMP3.com. Greg, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. Not that this is an August honor or anything, but this is the 100th episode. Wow. Yeah. That is a special honor. Yeah. So it's great to... What prize do I get for that? Yeah, nothing. But, you know, I don't know. Maybe you'll get some new listeners or something. I I think 100 means $100 gift card, Amazon gift card. I'll tell you what, you can promote anything you want right now. You could promote your website. You can, you know, anything you, you, that you, anything that you want to promote to plug, uh, you know, you can plug right now. Well, I would say go to wordmp3.com. And if you're the hundredth purchaser of the James B. Jordan complete collection, then you'll get a special Cracker Jack prize. Love the Cracker Jack Prize. So, Greg, this Sunday is Trinity Sunday. There's, I remember Leslie Newbegin in his theological autobiography, his autobiography, it's, it's kind of like a theological autobiography, but he talked about when he retired from India, somewhere in Armenia or something, visiting this ancient Christian monastery, and there was this rune, something said, I forget where it was inscribed, that here's the pulpit where the, wherein the abbot would preach you know, every Sunday it would give a homily on the given readings, except for the Trinity Sunday, because the matter was thought to be too complex. Or something like that. Uh, you know, so this is uh, an interesting set of readings. First, we come to the book of Proverbs, chapter eight, verses one through four and 22 through 31. So you have this sort of, you know, exhortation, I guess. It's almost like from a father to a son, right? Doesn't wisdom call, does not understanding raise her voice. And uh, you have then further down, you know, as it gets into 22, the sort of autobiography of wisdom, the personification of wisdom, Lady Wisdom here. So it's an interesting passage. And of course, many of the, much of the Christian tradition has seen a kind of connection to the personification of wisdom. And we have Paul even talks about Christ as the wisdom of God and the Logos in John 1. And so there, this is something in the tradition that has a kind of a precedent, which is why I guess it's the Old Testament selection for Trinity Sunday. Yeah. Well, it is certainly a classic text. I don't have a particularly profound, uh, you know, comment on it, except that... Uh, <laughs> don't this... sell yourself short. Hey, everybody, let me just really warn you. I don't have anything <laughs> profound to say. Well, well great. You should, Greg, you should leave the ministry and go sell cars. Yes, <laughs> this uh, this right. Camry, it's not a great car, but I mean, for the money, you could do a lot worse. <laughs> well, uh, the, I've, I've wondered about this text as to, to what extent do we uh, bring this into Christian, full or Christian theology. You know, there's this discussion of, for example, let us make man in our image. Is that a proto-Trinitarian verse, or is that some kind of a plural of majesty? Most recently, I've heard people talk about it being uh, the the idea of the counsel of God 
that there right. is. It's almost uh, like Game of Thrones, right? When you see people by the Iron Throne and there's all these people around the counselors and the, and the no, yes. yeah, it's sort of like that. Yeah. And that, that's, that is probably what, what's going on in those, um, plurality texts of the Old Testament. And when you talk about wisdom crying in the street, you know, to what extent does this directly relate to Christ? Obviously, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, Christ is the Logos, there is a, Christ is wisdom, there is that, that's definitely the case. Uh, but, you know, I rather think that maybe in some of these passages that it's simply using the language that people at that time would have understood, and that is uh, God, God is drawing upon wisdom um, in a in a personified way. I think that's you know that's where I'm I'm at right now on it. <laughs> so I could be persuaded, as you could tell. I don't have uh, a strong you know commitment. But in the text, it, it says, you know, the Lord created me at the beginning of His work, the first of His acts long ago. Well, there you already have kind of a an indication that there's something going on other than the second person of the Trinity or anything like that. I was reminded last week, so if you, last week was Pentecost, um, and I spoke about the Holy Spirit, and one of the things I emphasized in uh, addressing the, the the work of the Spirit is that the first time the phrase of the Holy Spirit filling someone is used, it's in, it's in Exodus 30, and it's, it's Bezalel who's filled with the Spirit for work craftsmanship, and it says, I've filled him with the spirit of wisdom. So same idea that God is working through wisdom. And uh, one of the things I emphasized from that uh, text is that the the work of the spirit is a work of wisdom, and it's like artisanship. It's like poetry. And so I try to encourage, we have a number of artists and poets and songwriters in our congregation, and we actually have a, uh, some re- really amazing, um, you know, artists, and so I, I want to encourage them to say, you know, the, the whole work of the Spirit is is a work of wisdom, and it's likened unto uh, the filling of the Spirit brings about works of artisanship. Ephesians two ten speaks of us being God's workmanship, His poema, and so here the whole world is God's poema. That's about as profound as I can get this early in the morning. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, and, and just for our listeners, we're not recording at the crack of dawn or anything, but uh, <laughs> no. But you know, I think two things. I think a one of the part of the wisdom of the Christian tradition is that we have multiple readings of text. That the that what the authors might have meant is not always the last word, and 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 we should always ground exegesis in in the in what's immediately going on, but also. You know, multiple meanings, just like you can't know the Father without the Son or the Son without the Spirit and the Father, that we ought to expect that I think texts have a sort of multi layered meaning. Uh, the other thing I was thinking about, I was just thinking of the Serenity Prayer recently. You know, God, give me the grace to accept the things I can't change, the courage to, to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. And I think so much of wisdom, right, is knowing like, accepting what you cannot change, which is so much. There's so little you can control, you know, or change in this life. But there are things that are given to us that really are, you know, are part of how we live as God's creatures. And I think wisdom, that's at the heart of wisdom, right, is discernment and and seeing how, uh, and so I think part of the whole book of Proverbs is that there's a sort of rhythm to the universe, you know, that once you, that, that, that gives you some insight into yeah. the, into this uh, way that you figure out, you know, how you 
live in the world as a creature that's finite, yet also has power and agency. Well, yes, and I always like to comment on the psalm of the day, too, because it's Proverbs 8 and Psalm 8. Psalm 8 is very famous. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is, you know, God uh, indicating his um, place for man in the world, right? The, and, and this is cited, of course, regarding the restored man, Adam, the second Adam, the last Adam, Jesus. It's cited in 1 Corinthians 15 and a couple of the epistles. Uh, it was also Martin Luther King's favorite psalm. Oh, Psalm 8. So, it, but it's, you have given, you know, you've made, you've made them a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. This is talking about, you know, humanity. And you have given them dominion over the works of your hands. And you've put all things under their feet. That phrase, you've put all things under their feet. That's the phrase that shows up a couple of times in the New Testament that, you know, the properly restored humanity has been placed as the vice regent of the world, specifically Jesus, and now we are part of Jesus' body. So in the new creation, we see a full manifestation of that restoration. So wonderful truth, and God in his wisdom has made this to be the case. to our epistle reading, Romans uh, 5, verses 1 through 5. Here we have Paul. That's interesting because, you know, in chapters 1 through 4, we have this majestic kind of tour de force where we learn that everybody has a, a, there's this universal problem that the gospel is the universal solution to, you know, that the the unfaithfulness of all is met by the faithfulness of one, uh, Jesus the Christ. And it's through his faithfulness that that we uh, that, that the sin of Adam is kind of undone, and, you know. And then in Romans five, we have this kind of unpacking of that. Uh, you know, it's definitely. I mean, some people see this as justification or sanctification, or you know, the Romans five beginning that kind of transition. Or another way, I guess, would be to look at you know justification or something about the way we're saved, and then how we live in the present with a hope to the future. You know, because he says. There seems to be a transition because it begins since or therefore we are justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've obtained access to this grace in which we stand and, and we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. And then he talks about how, you know, we'll go through suffering, but which produces endurance and character and hope and, and how this hope does not disappoint us because of the Holy Spirit. So this wonderful in these five verses, there's like just this kind of dense and yet not complex in some sense, or maybe, you know, a summary of the Christian life. I mean, you have this little sort of, if you need five verses to remember the cycles of the Christian life, this might be a good candidate. Yeah. Well, you know, again, since it is focused on the word justification there, there is that. But if you, <laughs> it is funny, Paul never quite, uh, 
makes it to the Protestant orthodoxy point of view. Like every time he's talking about justification, there's something else going on in the text. So it's never just this isolated justification. In this case, it's not just isolated justification either. You know, it's justification by faith. But then it goes on to say, and we boast in our sufferings. We know that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. Hope does not disappoint. Because the God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. Uh, you know, sometimes the Protestant point of view has tried to so strongly separate justification from sanctification that it's like in two watertight compartments. But most of the time, just reading through the Bible doesn't quite give you that luxury. There's uh, here, it's it's the holy, the love of God has been poured out into our hearts. You know, it's like, I don't know, just to comment on kind of our Protestant versus Roman Catholic point of view. You know, since... We are justified by faith. That's our Protestant verse. And then verse 5 is, a, is our Roman Catholic verse. So God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. <laughs> you, know, you have both things brought together there, uh, which, you know, I don't, I'm very comfortable saying justification and sanctification. But just to note that the proximity of justification language and sanctification language is very close. They're very close to one another. Uh, throughout the biblical text, and especially in Romans five one to five, yeah, it's interesting here. They both come by faith, right? I mean, or, or through and through God's action. You know, the, the, the holy the love of God's important on our hearts and the spirits there. So there's this sense in which it's not as though uh, justification by faith. Well, that's God doing God's thing, and then we do our thing. That that the living of the Christian life is a life uh, that's that's also a graced life, you know, yes. life in the spirit. Amen. Amen. It's interesting too because we have. It seems like we have these sort of blessings of justification here, right? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, this grace in which we stand, and this hope of sharing in the glory of God. That, that all these things are part of what Christ has brought us, you know, and, and the faithful one. And we place our faith in the faithful one. That these things come to us, this peace, the sense that hey, we all know we don't measure up, right? Like, <laughs> you know, that, that all of us, uh, whether it's sort of the moral law, and even if we have a sort of sort of stunted sense of morality and guilt, uh, it, it, it might be the law of like, hey, you got to be the perfect parent or the or the perfect uh, employee, the perfect pastor, or something. That there's there's a me- not measure upness that leads us all into those self justification projects. So we have peace from that and and access to this grace which we can really stand on. But we we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God that somehow the kind of you know C.S. Lewis talks about the in the weight of glory this you know poets tell us that you know that brooks really babble and that the trees are animated and stuff and these we want to get in we want to get into these transcendent beautiful moments and and that there's this hope that that we will inherit that and and that seems to be the those thing those seem to be the things that Paul says help us navigate and endure in our fragility and suffering and struggle. Hmm. Well, I, um, I take note here that also there's this kind of background language of faith, hope, and love. So verse 1, yeah. verse 5 about faith. Um, verse 4, this character produces hope. And then the last one is God's love has been poured out into our heart. So there's another little framework behind uh, this passage, faith, hope, and love. Yeah, it's really interesting. There's there's uh, a book that I like a lot by a theologian named Tomas Halik, and 
he wrote this, he wrote three kind of books that were translated in English and they correspond to faith, hope, and love. And the one I think that corresponds to hope, it's called Patience with God. And there's an ellipsis, which is credited to Adele Bastavro. So I found it was a Coptic Christian, you know, from Egypt. He was a layperson, a lawyer, but this is his, his thing on faith, hope, and love. Patience with others is love. Patience with self is hope. Patience with God is faith. And he, he says that, you know, later Halik says that what a sort of rigid atheism and a rigid fundamentalism have in common is they're, they're fundamentally impatient forms of faith. Um, and so, yeah, the, the patience, uh, which I think is empowered by the grace in which we stand in Christ and the Spirit, enables us to, to have patience manifest itself as faith, hope, and love, hopefully. On to the gospel reading, my friend. This is, we have John 16, where Jesus says to his disciples, I still have many things to say to you, but you can't bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. Um, and he just talks about how he won't speak on his own, but he's going to declare you these things. And, and, you know, he wants the church, you know, brought into the truth through the spirit. And of course, we know that the things that they couldn't bear now, Darby brought in dispensationalism. <laughs> yes, it is definitely the case that they now, had to now wait. We they had a... to. They had to wait to the to, to, to modernity until we got the keys to prophetic text. And, and finally, Clarence Larkin's biggest book on dispensational truth with all the charts. Yeah, I that's, love the charts. that's exactly what we're waiting for. Um, yeah, I, I think that uh, you know one of the observations. I think the musician Michael Card. Heard him make this a long time ago. I'm sure plenty of folks have made this. But you look through the Gospels. I mean, the disciples are kind of bumbling idiots for oh, the absolutely. most part, right? Absolutely. And, and then suddenly the Holy Spirit is poured out at Pentecost, and now they are bold as lions and martyrs, and you know, declaration. <laughs> they're declaring the truth, and you know, they they're you know founding the church, and it's a transformed world. Because of of these men, and so there's no, something. I think that's I think that's one of the best arguments for the veracity of scripture. I mean, if I was writing a kind of religious propaganda text, I would not make the foundational people at the heart of it around the leader look so poorly so often. Yeah, I, I, and I would not record all their disputes and everything. I mean, I, it just it it, yes. it 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 just rings so true of human beings. I mean, that you could put God incarnate next to human beings. And you could still call their, the the memoirs of the followers adventures in missing the point. Yes, and and John, no no gospel is more critical of the disciples than John. There's just frequent, you know, indications of their uh, lack of of understanding. You know, and, and like the text, you know, when they get in the boat with Jesus at one point, I'm not sure which text this passage is, but they, you know, they. They were afraid, you know, they were afraid, and, you know, the comment is, they had not learned the lesson from the bread. <laughs> you know, they had not learned the simple thing that Jesus was able to provide for them. So the need of the Spirit to come and guide them into all truth, which is a text that I would say does ensure 
inspiration of the text. It does ensure infallibility in their apostolic teaching. He's going to, the truth, the spirit of truth is going to guide them into all truth and not speak of his own, but speak and declare the things that are to come. He will glorify me. By the way, there's an important pneumatic uh, truth, if you will, and the pneumatic truth being that um, if if the Spirit is operative, the Spirit illumines Jesus. Yeah, I remember reading a book one time which encouraged the spiritual practice of praying directly to the Holy Spirit and addressing the Holy Spirit by name and essentially focusing on the Spirit. But I think uh, J.I. Packer once said, you know, the Spirit is like a light that stands behind to illumine Jesus, to illumine the face of Jesus. And that's the image I think we should have is the Spirit is to guide us. And that's what it says right here. He will glorify me, you know, not himself. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting because they're parallel, right? You have Jesus always talking about himself in almost a similar relationship to the Father. And that Jesus tends to kind of point away, you know, to the Father and the Spirit points away to Jesus. I mean, it kind of, it's interesting too, but you talk about the prayer thing. I think, I mean, the Christian grammar normatively, not that we couldn't pray to any of the Trinity, but there isn't the kind of normative thing we pray to God, to God, the Father, first person, in you know, through Christ in the Spirit. Yes, right. There's a certain order to our approach to Christian piety that I think demands that the Spirit of God uh, doesn't glorify Himself, but glorifies Jesus. And that's and this text says that. Also, the very first passage, or very first verse in, in John 16, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. You know, we might want to fill that out. And for those expl- using this text, you know, what, what is it that they couldn't bear? I think that they couldn't bear some of the more, more basic things of the Christian life. Um, you have to put yourself in their sandals to see this, but how could they understand the work of the cross? I mean, that, that's, that uh, within a generation after this, the apostles have to go around explaining why the cross is significant, and it is not obvious to anyone why that is the case. Just like it wouldn't be obvious to us if we said, yes, this person who died on death is on death row and di- died in the electric chair or something like that is the key to, to the meaning for life. And that would be just ridiculous. You know, this, this seditious Roman person, who's, they did not expect their Messiah to be crucified. You know, this is not the expectation you would have if you were there with the disciples in the upper room. By the way, that's where this is happening, in the upper room. Um, John 13 to, to 17 is taking place there. Well, you know, here is this this promise that the Spirit is going to come and and help you see. And what do they see? They see the significance of the cross. They see the significance of the resurrection in the middle of history as opposed to the end of history. They see the, uh, and again, beginning of Acts, you know, wait in the city until you are clothed with power from on high, until you receive the Spirit, then you'll be my witnesses. And even so, like, even that Acts passage, because what precedes, but you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, remotest part of the earth, what precedes that is them asking the question, is it at this time, Lord, that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Yeah, yeah. And a lot of people, you can go off on that in different ways. Some people would say, well, he didn't refute that, so therefore he is going to restore the kingdom to Israel. And so that's a popular verse for a premillennial perspective. But I think actually it's, it goes very much along with this word. 
I have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. I, they were not in the framework of mind to understand what God is going to do to make um, the multi-ethnic church of Jesus Christ, to yeah. basically make the world the church, to make the world the people of God, to make the world, dare I say it, the new Israel. Um, but, you know, again, I reflect on uh, a couple of weeks ago, we went through Psalm 47. At the end of Psalm 47, which was one of the lectionary texts, I think last week, um, or the week before, so, um, but Psalm 47 says, the people of the, the rulers of the nations of the world, the goim, the rulers of the nations, the Gentile nations, will gather before with the people of God. And if you look at the text, there's a variation. It's Psalm 47, 9. One text, one, one translation says, to gather as the people of God. And another, tra- other translation say, to gather with the people of God. Doesn't matter which one you go with, but it is striking to say, the goim gather as the people of God. That's yeah. not something you expect to hear in the Old Testament. But if that's not what it means, it definitely means they gather with the people of God, but in gathering with the people of God before the Lord to acknowledge his ascension to the throne, this is Ascension Sunday text, what do they do? Well, they are the people of God. They stand yeah. before God as the great you know, thing. This is Revelation 5 and Revelation 7 and the promise of the Great Commission. And, and so here, you know, they're not in a position to understand all of that yeah. and I, at I this point. You referenced earlier the, the Jesus being in the boat, like in Mark 4 and the other you know, parallels where Jesus is, he's in, the, or no, it's, I guess in, just in Mark 4, right, where he's sleeping, actually sleeping in the boat. Um, and the disciples are worried, and he's kind of like, why were you worried? I was in the boat with you. Like, you know, whatever would happen, you're with me. And I think that's the message of Trinity Sunday, right? That, that you know, God is, what we learn in the Old Testament is that God is for us, right? Like the, the, the God revealed in Israel is for us. It, and the gospel tells us that the God who is for us in, in power is also with us and alongside us in weakness. And that through the spirit that God is in us, Jesus is always in the boat. And so what, no matter when we're hit with tribulation or suffering or things we don't understand that we're being guided into, that we don't go alone, but we go with, with Jesus who will never leave us alone. Yeah. Amen. Thanks for doing this with me, my friends, and for being my guest on the 100th episode. All right, Scott. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Synaxis podcast. If you like what you heard, please go to iTunes, give it a rating, write a review, and subscribe, or pass it along to a friend via email, or say something about it on social media. All of those things help so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks to Greg Strawbridge for being my guest today. And thanks again to you all for listening. Until next time, fare thee well.